Hey folks, welcome to the Aspire Natural Health Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Tim Gerstmar. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating gut dysfunctions, autoimmune diseases, and other hard-to-treat cases. Our goal with this podcast is to bring you a range of interesting, informative, and yes, entertaining podcasts. All right, folks, without further ado, let's get to the show. All right, so let's talk about nutrition a little bit and the fact that there are a lot of studies on plant-based nutrition, right? So the general bottom line is we have to say, and I know you guys know this, but it, you know, is there one single perfect diet or dietary scheme that works for everyone? You know, because you will see people saying, well, everyone should eat paleo. Everyone should avoid gluten. Everyone should avoid dairy. Everyone should avoid meat and eat a vegetarian or vegan diet. There is one standard diet that should be applied universally across everyone. And the reality is that's that's not true, right? So we know that humans biologically, physiologically are omnivorous, right? Which means basically we have the ability to exploit whatever foods are occurring in virtually any environment, which is why even before the modern day, humanity basically spread out to every habitable niche on the planet, from the equator to the poles, and every the mountains to the deserts to, you know, and they lived, right? They did. They did, amazingly, right? So one, um, you know, again, it is not science, but if you guys haven't seen it, um, one worthwhile book or line of research to look into is Weston Price's work. Have you seen his work, right? So the idea, you know, he was at that perfect moment in time where science and technology and travel allowed him to get places and document things but it hadn't progressed so much that there still were groups that he could see, right? And so, you know, we see that the diets of the various groups, which ranged from, you know, high mountain isolated Swiss people to Africans to Australian Aborigines to Pacific Islanders um, and some South American groups and some other people were all really varied from one another, right? So some of them ate, uh, you know, quite a lot of animal products in their diet, and some of them ate very, very little animal products in their diet. And as long as they stuck to their ancestral diet, they were all really healthy people, right? Um, So, you know, when we talk about, you know, vegetarian and vegan diets, we need to understand that at least as far as vegan diets go, they're ahistorical. Like, there is no group of people that survived long-term on a vegan diet, you know? Can it be done using modern uh, um, modernity, basically, right? Sure, because you can supplement some missing pieces and you can, um, you know, fly things from here, there, and everywhere to make sure that people have access to those foods and things, right? But again, if we're looking, you know, if we're giving notion to the idea of seasonality as well, we understand that a lot of diets fall away, right? So, for example, you know, the extru- one of the extreme diets is fruititar- fruititarianism, eating nothing but fruit, right? Leaving everything else aside, we're saying, listen, unless you're kind of 
uh, you know, perpetually living in spring or summer in conditions where lots of fruit grows, that it is impossible to eat an all fruit. Like, if we're looking at a natural, quote unquote, natural diet, it would be impossible to maintain a diet like that, right? And, you know, eating things like all the leafy greens in general, like, you're not going to be eating fruit and most of the leafy greens come winter in the area that you live in. And Lorelai, you know, from, you know, farming and stuff, right? That that, that, that yeah. both, both <laughs> animals and, uh, uh, you know, plants have their seasons for growing, right? Like in general, and you correct me, like chickens don't, like normally speaking, chickens are not going to be laying eggs all year round, right? Is that true? So, sort of true. Right. right. And that's exactly what I was thinking. Right. We've, right. Because we we manipulate yeah. light and heat right. and all sorts of other things. We've, right. 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 So, you know, all of them have a seasonality. And, you know, for most of us who are living in a temperate environment like this, we would say, look, if, if we didn't have all the modern conveniences and transport systems and everything else are the the ratio of plant to animal foods in the diet was going to fluctuate throughout the year basically right obviously for us here in the pacific northwest when the, when the salmon runs would be all in order you'd be eating salmon 24/7 basically right and then you know when berry bushes are blooming you'd be eating tons of berries and then when they're not you wouldn't be eating any more berries anymore kind of thing right so we know that if we look sort of to the ancestral uh, archetype here we know that we're omnivorous right so we have the capacity to eat everything truly from basically a, a meat only diet, which again, it would not be, we're not carnivores, despite some people trying to make the argument that we we are carnivores. We're not carnivores. We're omnivores. People can subsist on an almost purely carnivorous diet. Although some of, you know, some of the data on the Inuit and the far north people who eat, you know, a at least at times, a nearly carnivorous diet says that there probably are some negative consequences from doing that, right? Possibly in bone formation and bone health and just overall health. And then it is also likely that, you know, genetically they are more adapted to dealing with that than someone else. So we run into this big problem with individualizing diets that if someone is of pretty much pure uh, genetic stock where they can trace their lineage to a certain place or group, they can get a much stronger, you know, so if someone is pure-blooded Native American from a specific region, well, then we have a pretty good idea historically of what that person would be eating, right? If they're 100% whatever, uh, you know, Scottish, then we know that, okay, you know, again, there's probably going to be foods that are more relevant for those people. But almost all of us these days are faced with the fact that we're mixed heritage and sometimes very disparate mixed heritage as well. Like, what do you tell someone who is half equator person by genetics, but half Inuit by genetics? Like, what, what you know, is going to be 
the the ancestry, the genetically appropriate diet for that person, and we don't have the answer right now. They're holding out hope that you know we can you know you can take someone's genetics and you can look at them and you can prescribe them the genetically appropriate diet and there are a couple of companies out there who are selling that and the data is strong that basically it's they they really don't know what they're doing right I mean the 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 science is not mature enough to draw strong correlations. There are a few odds and ends that we can look at. Uh, We've talked about, you know, if you don't make good conversion of your omega-3 fatty acids, you're going to have to favor more of the animal-based long-chain omega-3s and the plant-based ones are not going to work well for you. If you can't make conversions from beta-carotene to vitamin A very well, you're going to need to seek out more animal-based sources of vitamin A versus plant-based sources and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So there are a few possibilities that we can look at. So one of the things, you know, when we look at people who have done, who have done and continue to do very well on, you know, extremely vegetarian or fully vegan diets, genetically, these are people who do well, you know, who make those conversions, who do well with those things. Um, And then we see this range of people who sort of crash quickly once they go to a vegan diet, right? They would be your ultra poor converters of many of these things, right? And then the standard sort of, um, and this comes back to your point, Jim, the standard person, you know, generally feels pretty darn good uh, switching from a standard American diet to a vegetarian or vegan style diet, typically for anywhere from about nine months to about three years. They're doing better, feeling better. Um, so to use the criteria um, that Rob Wolf put forward, they look better. So they lose some weight and look better. They feel better. So And then they, um, they perf- they're performing better in their, whether that's their day-to-day lives or physical activities or things that they're doing. And then their blood work tends to improve as well, yeah. right? But then typically somewhere between nine months and about three years, some of their nutrient stores become depleted. Uh, they begin to run into deficiencies of various kinds, and their health tends to go downhill, right? So we'll see that commonly, like hair starts falling out, uh, metabolic rate starts plunging, they're cold all the time, they get sick all the time, their hair and skin are not doing well, their body composition is shifting unfavorably, so they may have lost weight, but they're more, they're fatter and more sarcopenic, meaning less muscle mass than they had before, um, and things just start crashing for them, basically, right? So... When we talk about, you know, the data is pretty strong for vegetarian-style diets, for Mediterranean-style diets, and then, of course, there's a lot of debate about, well, what's a real Mediterranean-style diet? You know, the the current consensus is, you know, in the literature that a Mediterranean-style diet is fish a few times a week, uh, red meat, you know, a couple times a month, um, you know, plenty of uh, beans and fruits and vegetables, uh, olive oil is going to be a primary source of fat along with the fish, basically, um, and uh, some wine, you know, thrown into the diet. Right, right. So 
What we have to look at when we're looking at these diets and health benefits is, frankly, the sw- if there's one diet that is basically universally bad for everyone, it's the standard American diet. You know, with a few rare exceptions of people who, you know, they're the genetic winners who seem to do okay eating a crappy diet full of processed food and don't seem to have health consequences. The vast, vast majority of people and what Weston Price found in his work was, again, universally people who were on their appropriate ancestral diet did really, really well. And when they were introduced to white processed sugar, white processed flour, and processed vegetable oils, their health universally declined. And we're seeing that, you know, in, um, you know, in the Western modern people that we deal with every day, right? So pretty much universally, a change away from that diet in any direction brings health benefits, right? So, if you take people on a Western, a standard American diet, and you put them on a paleo diet, do they get healthier? Almost all of them do. If you put them on a vegetarian diet, do they get healthier? Yes, they do. A vegan diet, yes, they get healthier. A Mediterranean diet, yes, they get healthier. So part of the answer to why you're seeing in the scientific literature, they're saying, well, plant-based diet help, help people get better. So there's two confounding factors in there. The first is simply a switch away from a standard American diet to virtually anything brings health benefits, right? And then the secondary question is, does that specific dietary regimen confer benefits above and beyond simply switching away from a Western American diet, right? So for example, like a fruitarian diet, which is not eating nothing but fruit, right? Which is most of the time people are doing that for spiritual reasons. Like they, they don't want to take life or, you know, plant or animal life. And so they're saying, well, fruit is designed, quote unquote, to be eaten. And so therefore I'll eat that and then I won't kill anything. And noble intention and everything else, but in, of course, incredibly deficient diet and in many, many ways, right? Mineral deficient, vitamin deficient, protein deficient, fat deficient, like basically um, just straight up deficient on most everything. But if we took someone of a standard American diet and we switched them to a fruitarian diet for a short period of time, would we see parameters of health improve? Yeah, almost assuredly we would, right? Until the deficiencies begin to catch up with the person, and then you would see health declining for that person, right? So we know that, you know, my baseline is saying a whole foods-based diet, period, is going to be a healthy starting template, and that's very broad for people, right? So we'd say, obviously, all fruits, all vegetables, all nuts, all seeds, all whole grains, all legumes, all dairy products, right? All meats, um, you know, are potentially available in a whole foods-based diet. And we look at prices work, and we say, well, basically, in some variety, those different groups were consuming different ratios or amounts of all those whole foods, right? There was was some controversy even in Mm -hmm. in coaching school Mm -hmm. around dairy, though. Right. Because dairy is like something we we had to domesticate. Sure. We're not, you know. Sure. We we had to start with the milk product or whatever. Right. But other than that, there's usually agreement. Well, look, but... 
But you can say that same thing. So the argument goes, well, we shouldn't eat dairy because no other species eats dairy. And we've had to specifically domesticate dairy, uh, you know, cows and other animals to get dairy. And then, you know, we know that there are at least some genetics involved in being able to that we've seen. We've seen modifications in genetics like lactose tolerance to to deal with dairy. And listen, that's valid, but we also have to look at that we've modified basically all our other foods as well. If it's not truly wild food, we've modified it. So, you know, there are wild grains, and we know that our ancestors, you know, took advantage of them. There are wild fruits, but of course, most of the wild fruits look nothing like the modern fruits that are available to us. Or of course, wild tubers, wild vegetables, but of course, they typically look very different from what we've made of them. They're, of course, wild animals, but all our domesticated animals look very different from yeah. what they they used to look like, basically, right? And, you know, that same argument, well, no other animal does it. Well, I don't see these same people giving up their computers, their phones, their clothes, um, their cars, and everything else that no other animal does as well, right? So we just have to be, listen, there's some validity to saying, well, if nobody else does this, should, should we be doing it, right? There's some validity to that argument, but sort of the appeal of saying, mm-hmm. Right. Well, it's 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 milk designed for baby cows. Right. It's got a, it's got a growth hormone, um, you know, in, in there and everything to, to grow a small cow into a thousand pounds as quickly as sure. possible, so it could be in the herd. Right. And it's 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 not human milk. It's right. Not, you know, Sure. That's the thing I keep hearing. Right. Well, and look, I mean, there's is dairy problematic for people? Sure. For some people it is, but for everybody, no, it's not, right? And so the argument, well, you know, and, and there's some validity here, like the... If you look at cow's milk and you compare it to human milk, are the ratios and amounts of various things different? Yes, they are. But does that mean that it's inherently unhealthy? No, I don't think that it does, right? And so we don't want to be dogmatic and say, well, every, and then there's some data that's again, says that dairy may have some issues and everything. But again, we know that there are historical groups that consume dairy and were healthy and functional, you know, Price has the Swiss people up in the mountains consuming lots of dairy and being a very healthy, long-lived group with significant dairy in their diet. Um, you know, they get the poster child, but some of the African groups like the Maasai and others seem to have consumed dairy for, you know, thousands of years and been healthful and everything went well for them. So I don't think the blanket condemnation of dairy is 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 justified. But again, so we start with that premise of saying, look, a whole foods diet uh, as a baseline is going to be a much healthier choice than you know, a highly processed food diet, which again has been shown to be the one diet that universally wrecks havoc among human beings, right? But then, of course, there is going to be individualization of that diet based on on uh, uh, the needs of that individual, 
right? So there was a study that was done. It was a small study, but done comparing, you know, a mostly vegetarian diet against like a paleo diet, for example. Um, And that paleo diet was high in carbohydrates, like it had a lot of fruits that were included in the diet. But it was done, and and I'd have to look it up again, but if I remember, it was either on diabetics or pre-diabetics, basically. And they found that the paleo diet in this group worked better, even though it was a high-carbohydrate diet, relatively speaking, than the the vegetarian-style diet did. So we have to say, yes, look, if someone came to us and said, my choices are between a a vegetarian-style diet, a plant-based diet, and the standard American diet, what should I do? The answer would be, well, the standard American, uh, sorry, the answer would be the, the vegetarian diet. Don't do the standard American diet, right? Almost anything is better than, the, than that, right? But, you know, again, it needs to be individualized for that person, right? So, um, you know, are some people going to do better on, you know, a mostly plant-based diet? And so this is my other side. You know, can we eat animal foods but still be eating a largely plant-based diet? Well, you'll see like a lot of the, you know, the paleo diet has been mischaracterized as a meat-only diet or, you know, a giant steak on your plate with a stalk of asparagus sitting next to it, and that's the paleo diet. And certainly do some people choose to eat it that way? Well, sure. But what we're really pushing for is that you that it's a plant-heavy diet. So you're eating animal products, right? But you're also eating, you know, copious quantities of plants as well. Because look, you know, as an omnivore, plants can supply, you know, a tremendous amount of various nutrition, as well as beneficial plant compounds or phytochemicals, which can help detoxify the body, prevent cancer, reduce oxidative stress, on and on and on about all the beneficial things that plants can do for us. But you know, are there com- you know compounds and nutrients and various things in animals that aren't that are not available in plants? Yes, you know everything from zinc, uh, which is difficult to get, to vitamin A, which some people might not be able to convert, to long chain omega threes, which some people might not be able to convert, to certain condition conditionally essential amino acids, which some people have a really hard time making enough of. Um, to protein in general. So protein is always one of those things. And so we have to say there is the minimum requirements for protein, which people need to basically not die, and they're very low, right? So can you get all of that protein from, from vegetables to not die? Like, yes, you can, right? But the issue is between sort of minimum daily requirements of protein, not to either go into severe protein deficiency or, um, you know, protein deficiency diseases, basically, um, and the amount of protein that's been shown to help people really thrive, and they're quite different from one another. So we've seen, for example, you know, early studies said proteins hurt bones, and the thought process was that higher protein levels cause higher levels of calcium to be excreted in the urine. So therefore, oh, it's acidic and you're breaking down your bones and all that calcium is leaching out in your urine and therefore it's going to give you higher protein intake is going to give you osteoporosis, right? 
only studies show that that's basically not true. So what happens with a higher protein diet is that the cal- your calcium intake into your body also increases as well. So you're absorbing more calcium out of the food that you're eating to go along with that protein, and then higher amounts of calcium are being excreted so that your net calcium intake um, improves, essentially right? And studies have shown that higher protein intake is conducive to better bone strength. Because we think of bones as calcium, but they're not. I mean, they have a lot of calcium in them, but pure calcium is chalk, right? And you've seen how strong chalk is. It's not. You can crack it you know, easily with your fingers and everything. So bones are made of a protein skeleton. So you think of bone, when I describe bones, we talk about like skyscrapers, right? So from the outside, all you see is the glass and the concrete and everything on the outside of the building. But of course, you strip that away and underneath are all the girders and all the the load-bearing beams and things that make up that building. Bones are the same way. When you look at a bone on a skeleton or whatever, you're going to see essentially the minerals, right? Mostly calcium, but also magnesium and a variety of other minerals that make up that bone. But an actual living bone, all that structure underneath is built of protein, So the bone is a protein skeleton inside the bone that then is all hardened up and the body builds all the minerals and all the calcium and everything else around that bone. And so if you don't have enough protein, you're not building your skeleton. And studies have universally shown that just pounding more calcium, like first it's 800, then 1,200, then 1,600 milligrams, then 2,000 milligrams, and the studies are universally disappointing that at best, at best, all you're doing is slightly slowing the loss of bone for that individual, right? So can someone be calcium deficient? Well, like, sure. Do you have to drink? So the big piece for dairy is, oh, well, it has a lot of calcium in it. Well, that's fine. Are there other sources of calcium from the diet? Yes. So do people, must people eat dairy to get calcium? Like, no, no, they, they don't have to. Can it be a source of calcium for them if it if they're tolerant of dairy and it works for them? Sure, you know, but studies have shown that higher protein intake is more beneficial. So in many ways, so higher protein intake blunts appetite for people, right? So low pro, there's a theory that goes that in part, in part, appetite is driven by getting enough protein in your diet. And so generally, some of the studies on monkeys and others have shown that when you put them on a low protein diet, they're gonna increase their caloric intake until they reach that kind of minimum level of protein in their diet. Because protein truly is an essential uh, macronutrient. Like if you don't get enough of it, you will die from it, right? And studies have shown that in seniors, which again is the group that we're looking at at risk for osteoporosis and osteopenia, um, that higher protein intake not only correlates to stronger bones, but increased muscle mass on their bodies. And so we talk a lot about osteopenia, meaning loss of bone. Osteo means bone, penia would mean loss, or osteoporosis would mean means major loss of bone. But there's something else called sarcopenia. Sarco means muscle. Penium would be loss. So loss of muscle, um, which is also a really major 
concern for quality of life, especially as people get older. So you're kind of, and the, the variety of reasons, but the common picture you see of the old person who's kind of shuffling around, who can't get out of a chair, can't walk, can't do these things, uh, that's kind of that inevitable decline. Once you basically can't walk anymore, then you become chair-bound, then you become bed-bound, and then your prognosis goes down really fast. Like, that's the fast track to dying, basically, is being bed-bound, right? And so, again, a variety of reasons from hormones to the brain function and neurology, but a big piece is that loss, that sarcopenia, that loss of muscle mass is a downward a downward trend. Mm-hmm. It's very common mm-hmm. for that to happen together. That you're having, you're, you're losing bone and right. you're losing muscle mass right. together. And Correct. So that also indicates that it's just not something to do with calcium intake. Right. Or right. That it, it's really a process of degeneration of the whole of the whole system. Right, right. So we'd be looking, you know, the same kind of hormonal deficiencies that can lead to bone loss will lead, can lead to muscle loss as well. That's also why weight-bearing exercise becomes critically important because not only does it build, it builds both muscle and bone at the same time, right? So a study that showed as well um, that the, uh, what's called the anabolic response, anabolic means building um, the anabolic response after exercise, uh, they said in, and they didn't specify, they said in quote-unquote young people, which in this case I'm taking to mean 40 or under, maybe 30 or under, was maximized after exercise by 20, by 20 grams of protein. They found that the consumption of 20 grams of protein, which roughly speaking would be about three ounces of an animal product, um, would be in, would be all that's needed to maximize the anabolic response in young people. They found in older people, however, again, they didn't define this, but for me, I'm saying if you're roughly 40 or older, in this regard, you would be considered an older person. They, they needed double that amount of protein to get the same response. So whereas 20 grams of protein in a younger person was sufficient to maximize that anabolic response, they needed 40 grams of protein in an older person to get the same level of responsiveness. So in general, we're recommending that older people, if anything, need to consume a little bit more protein than younger people, right? In order to maintain stronger muscles and stronger bones, then of course we know that protein is necessary for skin, hair, and nails as well, which is, um, you know, a lot of people, vanity is one way to, you know, work on improving their diet, of course, right? Um, And so for healthier skin and nails, we often see, again, like in protein-deficient individuals, um, again, not everyone, but many of the people who seek us out who've been on vegetarian or vegan diets, we often find that skin, hair, and nails are in sad shape for them, basically, right? And getting more protein into their diet often improves it, and fats as well are also a big component, right? So, um. So, can plant-based diets improve health? They certainly can. Are they appropriate long-term for everyone? No, they're not, right? And so, again, that could range from someone who might be, you know, 90% of their diet might be plant-based, probably to somewhere, you know, for most people, 50-50, I would say, 
you know, uh, essentially of their diet, right? Are there some people because of SIBO or other digestive complications where they really need to kind of minimize the amount of plant food that's going into their diet? They certainly are, but that would be a case of, you know, the, the pathology um, being the problem, right? And not necessarily that the, the, the you know, well-functioning human body is not able to deal with that stuff, right? So we always say, I think part of it we're seeing is just anything that shifts away in the literature, anything that shifts away from the standard American diet is going to bring improvement. And then you see, you know, you brought up Ornish in particular, who's shown regression of some plaques. Of course, you know, you could go all day. There are people who dispute some of his findings as well. But it's important to note that his protocol is not simply a dietary change, right? It's diet, exercise, meditation, smoking, stop smoking, five things. I think I'm missing one more. But it, it that's fine. He does community stuff as well. Okay. Community, community support and group and everything. So, right. So it's important like, to just be honest about that. Is the is the switch away from a standard American diet beneficial? Yes, but studies have shown that you know stopping smoking is usually beneficial. Getting exercise is really beneficial. Getting people in good supportive community support, doing meditation, all of these things. So it's fine, but then to turn around and say, well, I've got this multifaceted program, but it's the diet change that does it, is disingenuous, right? I pretty much guarantee if you took most of those people and you put them on a paleo diet, but you also included smoking, cessation, exercise, community support, and meditation, you'd see at least as good a benefit as you, or really almost any other diet, as long as it's frankly not deficient in, you know, important nutritional factors for the person. But if you put someone on a comprehensive program like that, you're probably going to see improvements, right? So, Obviously, that's what we're trying to do is... The, 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 the thing that bothers me is they hold up the plant thing right. as, as that's the healing agent. Right. Like, yeah, you know, maybe long-term. I think some of those people even agree that everybody shouldn't be vegan. Mm-hmm. But on the short term, the, at least the, the argument it seems like they're trying to make, mm-hmm. directly or indirectly, right. is that... At least on the short term, mm-hmm. the plant-based diet is the is the better, bigger healer. Okay. I guess because of I don't know how they'd argue that more more antioxidants and phytonutrients and you know other other nutrients that would would do that. Although it, I think that one of the biggest errors in in their thing is it doesn't it does work for some people. Yep. And but but it's always like. You know, eighty percent or something, right? Well, and then, and then, right, and, then, and you don't, and we don't have any, any, any information about where that person come from and any evidence that they might do well or not do well on a plant based diet. Right. To start with, they just take it's it's basically a random population. Sure. You take them off the sad standard American diet, take them off the sad diet, put them on this plant based diet. Well, of course, they're going to start healing, especially if it's. There's the program's more holistic. Sure, sure. So, yeah, listen, I agree, and I don't think you can, um, you know. So what you're saying is, yes, yes. you can get that clinical result. Right. Those clinic, you, you yeah. can get those clinical results, 
and, and they could make it look like it had everything to do with just the plant nature of the diet and none of the other factors. Right. Well, I, I mean, I think it's a few things. Again, I think any switch away from a standard American diet, at least in the short term, is going to see you're going to see benefits, improvements, and health, right? And I think that, you know, for most people, that adding more plants into their diet is going to be beneficial for them, for most people, right? And then I think if you're doing a multifaceted treatment approach, you're, you can't solely base that on diet, right? So again, not that everyone needs to do a paleo-style diet, but certainly, you know, there's most people advocating a paleo-style diet are advocating a plant-rich paleo-style diet, right? So you can get all the benefits of eating plenty of plants, excuse me, in a paleo-style diet while you're including, you know, healthy animal products as well, and you're looking at a nutritionally well-balanced protocol, you know. Um, But, you know, what we see in in the scientific evidence is, you know, again— a bit of a bias and a bit of, well, this worked well in one trial, so let's reproduce it in multiple trials and everything. So the sort of, well, everybody knows that either a plant-based diet or a Mediterranean diet is the healthiest choice, um, so we'll keep using it, basically. And I'm going to argue that any whole foods-based diet, as long as it's not nutritionally, like severely nutritionally deficient, at least in the short term, you'll see benefits from it. You know, but again, what we see in like with Butner and his study of the blue zones is some people have taken that in the wrong direction. They've said, well, see, it's because they go into the hills and they pick these herbs and they make tea out of them or their wine is particularly polyphenol rich. And therefore, that's what it is, you know, and it's like, stop it. You know, to Butner's credit, he's even said, look, diet plays a role here, but it's also, you know, low stress levels, low toxicity levels, good good community support, um, you know, plenty of sleep, all of these other, you know, plenty of physical activity and everything. And it's it's a matrix of all of these factors coming together. Dramatic cultural differences in all those long-lived ones. Right. Really and take care of old people. Right. Being old isn't a bad thing, right? Right, right. It's not a. It's not a. You know, right, right. Yeah, especially we see in Okinawa, for example. It's like you know, it's a good thing to be old, not a bad thing to be old, basically, right? So of course, what's that? You know, the cultural programming that people get in this culture, it's that being old is bad. So right, we see everything is aimed at you know, anti-aging, making people younger, looking younger, appearing younger. Whereas in that culture, almost it's, hey, I can't wait till I get old, basically, right? Because then I, I am at a premier position in the in the society. Right, right, right. To be to be older than they... Right. Right, right. Right. Well, that's some of the things, you know, we have to take a lot of that, you know, well, so-and-so was found and they were 170 years old or 200 years old. And it's like, well, I, I never say never, but the, the odds are that's yeah, that's yeah. There, that's not the case. Either they're, they're knowingly and willfully exaggerating or they honestly don't really know and they're just kind of, they're just saying a thing, right? Um, people over like 110 where there's actually evidence is right. pretty rare. 
Yeah, look, the, the data says that, look, most people will probably, uh, if they eat well, okay, there's a little bit of luck here if bad things don't happen, right? But if they eat well, take care of themselves, that most people could easily live into their 70s and 80s. Data says that probably there's a genetic piece to get to 100 and that there really seems to be a strong genetic piece to live over 100, you know, so that most people out there, I know some in the natural health field are saying, you know, everybody can live to be 120. And the answer is probably not the case, you know, maybe technology here in the next you know, 5, 10, 20, 30 years might make that a reality where, you know, some of the goals are to add 30 or 40 extra years to the human lifespan. And I think that's, you know, possibly quite doable. Um, but quote unquote, naturally, is everyone going to live to be 120? And the answer is probably not. I mean, probably the realistic natural lifespan uh, assuming people take care of themselves and don't have bad luck and things is probably. 80, 90 years old, honestly, uh, uh, yeah. you know. What I've read is a good portion of people could probably live into their 90s uh -huh. if they don't, you know, again, it's like five things. If they right. If they don't smoke or use alcohol or drugs and right. have a good diet and they move and they, you know, it's basically a list of things. Right. You know, and they don't have bad luck. Right. Then they could probably live into their 90s. Right. And so I think we have to be honest with people, um, you know, that, that, that there is a limit. And that's why the, the other side, of course, is to be healthy, but not just to be healthy, but to do something worthwhile with your life, right? Which is why we have so much existential crisis in this culture of people saying, like, am I doing anything worthwhile with my life, right? Yes, I go and do a job and I make widgets and then I collect a paycheck and have a house and kids and whatever, whatever, but am I actually doing anything worthwhile? And so obviously that's the second side. I mean, I've seen people, they are the perfect specimen of health uh, by all measures, but they're miserable. And so it's sort of like, okay, you know, let go of your health a little bit and get on with doing something worthwhile with your life as well. And so, you know, one side of people is we have to say, yes, caring for your health is very important, but it's not the most important thing. It's just a healthy, yeah, exactly. Like we've said, health is a tool by which to go and do worthwhile things with your life. And again, it's going to be very, we know there are a few common things. It's connection with other people and it's having a meaningful impact. Um, our two universals uh, of, you know, happiness and a life well spent. But the rest, of course, is going to vary from person to person. I mean, someone wants to go exploring, another person may want to, uh, you know, uh, you know, whatever it is, right? I mean, so so it's going to be a very personal thing, but uh, that's the other side of it. So uh, that's my two cents. You know, I certainly think, uh, you know, we know enough to say pretty much categorically the standard American diet. Like if you could design a diet to be worse for people, you'd be hard pressed to find it than the standard American diet without going completely, you know, into wacky territory right? Most, most anything other than the standard American diet is going to be healthier than, than the standard American diet. But what specifically that is, is going to vary from person to person. And now maybe five years, 10 years, whatever from now, we'll be able, you'll come in, we'll grab a sample of blood, we'll do a quick genetic analysis, and we'll be able to point you in a much, you know, more specific direction 
it started to happen, right? I would anyone out there who might be listening to this, I would argue right now, as of 2016, like don't go waste your money on that unless you just like you have money to waste and you just want to see what it says, right? But it's moving in that direction where we'll be able to say, okay, Jim, you don't convert long chain fatty acids well, therefore you need to have more um, animal base in your diet, or you don't synthesize this amino acid or nutrient very well, therefore your ideal diet needs to have more of this and less of that and everything else. And so there potentially is coming the time when, when we'll have a lot more precision on how we guide patients and more specifically. In the meantime, we start with a whole foods based diet and you know it doesn't have to be paleo and that can we know again historically groups who ate very unpaleo-ish uh, by the current definition um, and were very healthy so for some people whole grains can make a major part of their diet or legumes or dairy or you know these things that aren't necessarily included um, you know some people need a lower carb diet to really thrive well. Some people need a higher carb diet to really thrive well. And when we get dogmatic about, well, it must be specifically this, that, or the other thing, um, you know, what we see is it doesn't serve patients. And then, you know, we get, they get into that guilt trip of, well, I, I, I'm not doing it well enough. I just need to do it more, right? More vegan than I have been, more low carb than I have been, you know? Um, and, um, and certainly with some people, they're not doing it right. I mean, frankly, you evaluate them and you're like, oh, really low carb, are we? Huh, well, 400 grams of carbs a day is not considered low carb. Like, you're not doing it correctly. So, of course, there are some people like that. But but many people we run into are smart and conscientious and pretty well educated about things. And if something isn't working for them, they need to change it, you know. And um, so it's not about being dogmatic. Um, I'm only dogma. Try to only be dogmatic about results. Like we want results. And if someone is not thriving well on a plan, then they need to change it to find the one that works for them. And so that's you know higher protein intake, lower protein intake, no problem, or, or any of these things. But start with a whole foods based diet. And for most people, they're you know a plant rich diet is a good thing right? So as a general sense, and then some people due to digestive problems or other issues, that's not the case. All right, folks, that wraps up another episode of the Aspire Natural Health podcast. If you enjoyed it, we hope you've subscribed to us over at iTunes. You can also check us out at our website, www.aspirenaturalhealth.com. That's Aspire as in A-S- P-I-R-E naturalhealth.com. You can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com slash aspirenaturalhealth or check out our library of videos over at YouTube. Just go over to YouTube and punch in Aspire Natural Health. You'll find us there. So a couple great more ways you can check out our free educational materials. At Aspire Natural Health, we are experts at treating gut dysfunctions, autoimmune diseases, and other hard-to-treat cases. If you that's you or someone you know, you can always contact us and schedule a free 15-minute consult with myself and find out if we are the right fit and we can help you out with your issues. So simply check us out, check out our website. Again, that's www.aspirenaturalhealth.com or give us a call at 425-202. 7849. You can set up that free 15-minute consult. All right, folks, until we meet again, take care.